นโมตัสสะบุคคาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบุคคาทูอรหัตูสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะทังธรรมังสังฆังนมัสสังสมทายไอไอฟันด์ดอินจูเอบลแอนด์ยูสฟุลทูทิงค์แบ็กทูทูรีเฟล็กต์ออนดีพาร์ติคิลาร์ทิมส์แอนด์ผู้คนที่ผมเจอในอดีตมีความสำคัญและความสำคัญในชีวิตของผมในการปฏิบัติในชีวิตประจำวันและไม่เป็นสิ่งที่ผมทำแค่เพื่อทำเป็นเทคนิคแต่เป็นสิ่งที่ผมชอบทำและเป็นสิ่งที่ผมชอบทำและเป็นสิ่งที่ผมชอบทำและเป็นสิ่งที่ผมชอบทำ Really feel fortunate of people that I've met, uh, little teachings that I've heard, situations I've found myself in. That that um, when I reflect on, I think, yeah, that was significant. That was that was really important, and and so gratitude, and also it helps to to uh, keep in perspective what's really important, what matters in life. Uh, Mundane concerns can easily become a distraction, and so it's useful to say, "Yeah, this is this is what I'm doing. This is I want to I want to stay with this this path. When I'm dying, I don't want to think, 'Well, I missed the boat there, didn't I? I wasted that one.' So, so reflecting on these important moments, significant people, and occasions in one's life can give rise, I find, to gratitude and also. A sense of of clarifying uh, what what really matters. It's also something that the Buddha himself did after his enlightenment. Um, he didn't just uh, go off and uh, spend the rest of his life indulging in bliss, uh, but uh, what arose in his heart, what arose in his mind, was uh, how can I benefit. Those who have benefited me, he thought about where were my previous teachers. Uh, he'd spent uh, many years living with this teacher and that teacher, trying to find the answer to his deep, troubling questions, and none of them were able to give him the complete answer. So they all gave him a little bit of something, and after his enlightenment, there was a sense of gratitude and indebtedness and wanting to help them. And I think that's. That's uh, that's useful to bear in mind, and uh, when we reflect upon previous teachers we might have lived with, or experiences we've had, uh, teachings we've heard, that uh, not to fall into thinking, oh well, that wasn't the real thing, but rather to focus on, yeah, well, that was beneficial to that point, uh, and to feel grateful for whatever benefit uh, we have gained. It all contributes, and. And you know, not just to think, oh well, that teacher—he was just teaching concentration. He didn't teach insight, so I forget about him. Or, 
Well, that teacher, you know, he didn't have any sila, so, you know, whatever teachings he gave, they weren't useful. But uh, rather to focus on what we can feel grateful for. So anyway, thinking about this recently, what came to my mind was a very... uh, when When I was at university, an experience I had when I was... Uh, with a group of friends, and we were making use of our um, a, a, a beach cabin. My university professor let us use his uh, holiday cottage, uh, a place called Whale Bay near Raglan, which most of you won't know about, <laughs> in the North Island of New Zealand. A very nice beach, great part of the country, and it was very nice of our university professor to let us use his cabin and get up to all sorts of heedlessness there, which one wouldn't repeat anymore. But at the time, it was uh, it was great fun. And um, now one of the things that, that hit me, and I remember from that period, was one of the cabins there had this poster on the wall. And this poster had this, this word blazing across the top, awareness. Awareness. And then it awarenesses. I don't remember what anything else it said, but it said awareness. And I can still remember how that struck me, that that was, I guess I was probably maybe 19 at the time, and it struck me. It was the first time in my life that I had the impression of awareness is something you can think about. When you're aware, this is a consequence. When you're not aware, that's the consequence. I never had a concept of awareness before. Of course, I knew the word, but I never really had a concept. I didn't appreciate that one could contemplate awareness. And so it was the first time in my life, and I'm very grateful for that, that that this came up on my screen, because I think a lot of people go through their life totally unaware that awareness, this faculty of awareness, this knowingness that we all live with, is something that we can contemplate. We can have a concept of awareness. So later on in my life, as I... um, very gratefully came across the Buddha's teachings. I hadn't done at that point, but later on in my life, when I, at least I don't think I had at that point, I wasn't at university very long. I, I didn't finish my training course there. It was during my time at university that I came across uh, also the Buddha's teachings. But, but uh, anyway, later on, I came across the Buddha's teachings, the four foundations of mindfulness, and there's this specific encouragement to contemplate awareness. Is awareness expanded or is awareness contracted? Uh, Is awareness accommodating or is it excluding? These questions that we can ask ourselves in the the cultivation of awareness. And so to use this, I think, can be very skillful. And um, I'm grateful that uh, certainly I have this memory of it and I'm grateful that I came across it at that stage in my life. And... And since then, of course, have have uh, put a lot of energy into, and still do, into engaging this concept of awareness and working with it, and and finding how finding for oneself how if you if you are skillful, this concept of awareness can protect you from collapsing into attachment with, identification with, the content of awareness. 
one of the first teachers I lived with in Thailand, Ben Rajan Tate. And one of the first teachings he gave me when I lived there, where he says, it's your job and practice, he said, is to tell the difference between awareness and the content or the activity of awareness. Luchak jit, like a ruchak, agan kong jit. Know your awareness and know the activity of awareness and being able to see the difference. And the teaching, the meaning behind that was that if you can see the difference, then you don't get caught up in all the content of awareness, all the views, the opinions, the preferences, the liking, the disliking, the joy, the sorrow, all the experiences of life are taking place in awareness. But we don't stop to actually contemplate this very often. We're just busy getting thrown around by all the content of awareness. Now, when, of course, it's a nice bit of content of awareness, you know, sunshine, joy, happiness, good food, la, 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 all that is, is, is very agreeable. And we think, well, that's just fine. But we're just riding a wave that's going to crash any minute. And then we get caught up in another content of awareness, which is disappointment, despair, sadness, loss, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Yeah. And so the... Uh, the this wonderful Dhamma teaching we have is the encouragement to, we don't have to get lost in the content of awareness. It's not an obligation. If instead we cultivate this concept of awareness itself, remembering awareness itself, just knowing, can help protect us from getting caught up in the content of awareness. One of the reasons why this is on my mind is because recently I um, went home to visit my mother in New Zealand. And if one was to talk about the content of awareness, um, usually the experience of flying to the other side of the planet and being with my family um, is pretty disagreeable. And um, four years ago I decided that's it, enough. I've been home, I don't know, 20 times or something the other side of the planet, and tried desperately hard to be a good son and a, and a cooperative family member and all the rest of it, and it never worked out. It was always exceedingly stressful, unpleasant, and disappointing. And so four years ago, so that's it, finished. Tried enough for this lifetime, and um, we'll just now try and pack this equanimity and patience and, and kindness, but not so much trying to make everything nice and... Uh, much to my surprise, um, over recent months, uh, something changed and the conditions conspired to make it uh, obvious that really what I should be doing is going to New Zealand to see my mother. And I was very surprised. I didn't think that was going to happen again in this lifetime. So anyway, here it is. I, I just went for a week, um, three days travelling and four days there. And that, of course, in terms of experience, is a fairly kind of powerful thing to do to your organism, hurtling through the air to the other side of the planet and engaging in all this powerful uh, family history and old age sickness and death and all the things that come with it and and then hurtling back again to the other side of the planet. But uh, it was interesting this time. I I, I made much of this, this contemplation. Instead of instead of allowing the mind to contract, collapse all the time into the content of awareness, to remember awareness itself. Yes, uh, my mother was, of course, very happy to see me, 
But that didn't make it necessarily a thoroughly agreeable experience. My mother lives in a retirement home, an old folks home, and um, she's surrounded by lots of other old folks, and she's 93 years old. And I can remember um, when my mother was young, and of course I've got photographs of my mother when she was young, and my mother and father when they were newly married, and a very handsome couple. My father, very handsome man, and my mother, a very beautiful woman. And Well, now she's 93, and uh, it's not like that anymore. She's all hunched over, and she can still walk. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, um, it's not beautiful to look at. And, and the experience of being in a retirement home, I'm sure all of us have been in them, you know, they don't smell good. <laughs> they don't smell good. If I think of my family home, I could come up with the smell of freshly potted peas from the garden or, or the, uh, the fragrance of lily of the valley flowers in the garden or, or my mother used to keep this um, lavender fragrance on her dresser. And, well, that's not the fragrance of an old folks home. And the fragrance of an old folks home is pretty disagreeable. And, and also we're not talking about uh, you know, where we're going to go for a holiday together or or um, going and as a family to pick blackberries and have blackberry and apple pie for dinner. And we're talking about funerals. We're talking about, is it going to be a burial or a cremation? And then, of course, there's that other, what I find thoroughly disagreeable conversation, which my mother always insists on bringing up, is my not giving her any grandchildren, which, you know, after 37 or 8 years as a monk, I just think she should have given up that subject by now but she's a very determined woman my mother and I, I never failed to find that a disagreeable experience but what was interesting this time was despite the disagreeability of the experiences it was really wonderfully inspiring it's just to see how awareness can accommodate these experiences without making pro- awareness doesn't make a problem out of experiences it doesn't have to make a problem out of experiences. Awareness doesn't, full stop, make a problem out of experiences. Making a problem out of experiences is just another experience. It's more activity of awareness. Awareness itself is, I like to think of awareness as like space. We can cultivate the concept of awareness as like space. And, and you can apply this contemplation. And so... Finding something disagreeable or even something agreeable, you can instead of just collapsing into the experience, because you know we sometimes our meditation on mindfulness is we're supposed to be mindful of the objects of the mind, and and so here we are. I'm hurtling through the air, and there's this disagreeable experience of these carnivores consuming these burnt corpses and drinking alcohol, and it's, I, I find it a thoroughly disagreeable experience on the aeroplane. It's not flying I find disagreeable. That's one of the agreeable experiences, actually. If, if I could have the aeroplane to myself and I didn't have to deal with immigration and, and the agriculture and food officer and, and um, the customs people, if I didn't have to deal with all that, I'd love flying. You know, I'd probably go to New Zealand every week. But there are certain elements of the experience which I find thoroughly disagreeable. But instead of allowing our awareness to collapse around the disagreeable experience... What happens if we expand awareness and think of, as I said, the concept, hold a concept of awareness itself? 
If we, if we use this metaphor for awareness as space, and instead of focusing on this unpleasant experience on the aeroplane, what happens if we imagine awareness to be all the whole aeroplane, or the space in which the aeroplane is flying through? expand, imagine awareness as being like the space in which this... And then this little disagreeable mood is relativised. It's not such a big deal. It's just another speck of dust floating floating through empty space. At least there's a possibility we'll see it as such. I think this is particularly important. uh, The way we've been educated with our discriminating intelligence, we're very quick to hone in on experiences. I don't think our Asian teachers often realise the way our, our Western-trained minds work. I think a lot of them are a lot more laid back than we are. But our minds go, we go straight in on an object and we, we've already identified with it, grasped it and manipulating it, trying to spiritualise it in some way, and each dukkha anatta, empty, unsatisfactory, not self, whatever, trying to deal with this. But the fact is we've collapsed our awareness and become this condition. Well, I'm suggesting that it's very useful to counter that momentum of becoming experience and rather expand. You know, Hold the concept of expanded awareness, the concept of awareness itself, remembering that. When we're in a situation where it's disagreeable or agreeable, hmm. remember it's just the content of awareness, it's just activity taking place in awareness. So applying it in, um, in all of our experiences and situations we find like that in everyday life or the... the um, yeah, as, as many of you will know, my family are these uh, fundamentalist Christians who make me look like I'm, I'm really laid back and when it comes to religion. I mean, their religious views are, are really fanatical and homeopathy and yoga are the work of Satan. And uh, that doesn't... You know, a lot of hope for me. <laughs> and I do homeopathy, yoga and you know all sorts of other weird things. So I'm going down as far as they're concerned. And, of course, you know that doesn't make for a lot of harmony because they're holding to a serious view. Well, if and we can hold to serious views as well. I mean, I personally, as I said last week, I think Buddhism's best. I do. I really do. But as I also said last week, if we hold on to that view too tightly, we can create a problem when we meet people who don't happen to agree with that view. And so views are all right, beliefs are all right, like you know, the belief in rebirth, yeah, the teach, Buddhist teachings on rebirth, that um, you know, those of us who are brought up with a scientific education, we, we don't have any evidence, although there are a lot of studies done about it. Um, the mainstream scientific community doesn't seem to want to engage these studies. There's a, there's a bit of a, a conspiracy not to pay attention to these uh, very uh, serious studies done on the teachings on rebirth. And, and so anyway, our minds are disinclined to believe in it. But as Buddhists, we think, well, you know, the Buddha said it, so 
But there's maybe a little thing in the mind that says, well, maybe it's just some sort of superstitious old Asian belief system. You know, we, you know, we don't feel comfortable with that. And so we can, you know, so we get into this tension of, you know, sort of feeling like we should believe in it, but our scientific education and conditioned mind inclines us to not want to believe in it. And so, well, you know, I, I was very inspired when one of our monks went to see Ajahn Chah and, and, and told him, he said, oh, I just can't believe in this rebirth business, Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah said, well, that's all right. Come back in five years' time, we'll talk about it again. You know, Ajahn Chah didn't have a problem with that. You know. As far as he's concerned, I'm sure. There's uh, no question about it. But where he's confronted with is some collapsed, contracted Western ego who's seriously overeducated, who's having a problem with the concept of rebirth, he, he doesn't make a problem with it. He doesn't say, you naughty monk, you should believe in, in the concept of rebirth and shame him and humiliate him and say, you're not a good Buddhist. No, he says, well, come back in five years' time and we'll talk about it again. Put it on the back burner. It's just, you don't have to make a problem out of it. So, yeah, bringing our beliefs into awareness, holding our beliefs lightly. I've um, come across these days as quite a lot of teachings by these non-dual characters. Got a lot of them around in the West, not just in India, but also in in the West, these teachings of Advaita Vedanta. And and a lot of these non-dual characters uh, are promoting this idea of of it's all getting better all the time. Yeah, we're all, this is great evolution of consciousness, and and um, you know maybe it kind of goes along with the entering the age of Aquarius, and there's going to be much more love and light and and elevated consciousness, and there's not going to be more wars and and so on. And um, well, maybe that's true, but I don't know. I sometimes sometimes it doesn't quite ring true with me. Um, and certainly you can read other teachings, maybe some of the, even the classical Buddhist teachings talk about the, um, the Kali Yuga, the, the Dhamma ending age. The Buddhist teachings are only going to be around for a certain period of time and then it's all going to just get dark and terrible and there's not going to be any Dhamma teachings around for a very long time. And, and so you could, uh, you could hold on to a belief that it's all getting wonderful and better all the time or you could hold on to a belief that it's all falling apart and it's going to be terrible, and, and uh, goodness knows what's going to happen. And both of those beliefs are beliefs. Well, there might be some people, now some of these um, non-dual characters might be downloading data directly from the psychosphere and have some sort of direct insight into the absolute reality that it's all getting better and so on. And, and okay, if that's the case, well, so be it. I did write to one of them um, uh, via a friend of mine who's a student of one of these teachers and, and I asked him, I said, well, what evidence do you have for this idea that consciousness is evolving towards a better state and it's all getting better all the time? And the message I got back was, was he said, well, it's a better story than the story that it's all falling apart. And I thought, well, that's interesting. You know, at least he's telling me it's a story. He's not telling me that he's got irrefutable, unshakable insight into the fact that it's getting better. It's a story. Now, it may be that holding to that story is a functional belief system. Maybe holding to the, the view that it's all getting better and greater and improving uh, will be uplifting and inspiring. 
But it could also be that it, it locks you into denial. A few weeks ago, I referred to some talks by this um, this fellow in America, Stephen Pinker, who's well known these days for research that he's at least commenting on about the protect, particular orientation towards nonviolence. We're fortunate to be experiencing at the moment, uh, statistically very clear that there are fewer wars now than there's ever been throughout all human history. And if you look at the pattern, it's been going in this direction for a long time, right back through in the 1600s, 1700s. And so, okay, last century there was a couple of massive blips, World War I, World War II. But generally speaking, there is this inclination towards uh, less violence. And the, there's a much better chance now that most of us are not going to die aggressively or painfully than ever before. However, as even this fellow points out, there's no guarantee it's going to keep going in this direction. So my concern is that uh, this belief system that it's all getting better all the time, even if it might be functional on some level, it could also be locking us into a denial, an unawareness, which means we don't see stuff that's going on. We don't see that things are actually in some areas getting worse. And... Or similarly, grasping at the being a total old sad sack, you know, it's all falling apart, it's all terrible, and you know, might as well just top yourself now because it's, it's not worth it. Well, that's totally not to be recommended. Uh, that's, uh, because you could be missing out on, well, you are missing out on, absolutely, no doubt about it, you are missing out on a wonderful opportunity to learn. This, this situation we find ourselves in with this this coarse animal body but the sophisticated intelligence, the frustration we experience is the ideal opportunity to learn from life. And so I would suggest that if we make awareness our refuge rather than grasping at even a positive or a negative belief, if we hold our beliefs lightly, then that we can just stay with the fact that I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it is all getting better. Maybe we can be informed by that, but maybe it is all falling apart. Yeah, we can be informed from that as well. The truth is, and our awareness, and say, well, actually, I don't know. So, how we this concept of, of awareness uh, can be a great tool, a great aid in practice, uh, instead of uh, habitually collapsing into condition preferences or conditioned views and conditioned reactions that we have. We need to, to turn to this concept of awareness and to cultivate it, expand it. Instead of imagining me here with my awareness stuck inside this painful little body, being irritated by people breathing heavily, making noises, or all these other disagreeable sensations that are upsetting my world and disturbing my precious awareness... Instead of doing that, what happens if you imagine your awareness filling the whole room? You know, imagine awareness, as I said, imagine awareness being like space, or the space that, in which this whole hill, Harnham Hill, sits in the space of our awareness. And then all of this stuff comes and goes. You know, flies buzzing, aeroplanes zooming over, military up there at Otterburn doing their war games. We may not like it, but do we have to make a problem out of it? Do we have to create an enemy out of 
those military people up there doing their war games? Do we have to make an enemy out of the sensation in my knee? If we have expanded awareness, maybe there's a better chance that instead of collapsing into becoming through clinging, this particular sensation that will stay open enough to be able to reflect upon and see the relative nature of the experience. It's just so. Yeah, it's like that. The pain of the knee feels like that. The neighbours, you know, maybe they're doing shooting down there today. The neighbours are doing shooting plastic pheasants or whatever the English gentry do on a sunny Saturday afternoon. Kind of standing out going bang, bang and thinking it's fun and that's what they do. And really, you don't like it? Well, so what? What's disliking? Do we have to become the disliking? Or can we remember, well, it's just so. The, Buddha, the Buddha's reality was he knew it's just so. That's why we have this chant we do. Apamano buddho, apamano tammo, apamano sankho. Apamano means without measure, without limit. The Buddha was measureless, the Dhamma is measureless, the Sangha is measureless, it's edgeless. Now, we are edged, our awareness has got edges, it's got limitations, yeah, and we regularly come up against it. See? And the reason, and the times we come up against it is where we have that feeling, that perception of, oh, I can't take this anymore. Yeah. I've got to get out of here. Yeah. Well, it's okay, but if you're you know, flying over Afghanistan at the time and <laughs> you just happen to find the whole experience disagreeable and everything, I've got to get out of here. Well, maybe we can get out of there by just expanding our awareness. Uh, imagine our awareness being the space in which that aeroplane's flying through. You know, this feeling of, I can't stand this anymore, this experience, this sensation, and it's a whole body-mind experience, it's not just a cute little idea. You know, when we're really locked into that perception of, I can't stand this anymore, and we're shaking, and we're trembling, and our heart's racing, and the mind is creating all sorts of crazy stories about how we're going to get out of this disagreeable experience, well, if we prepared ourselves before that disagreeable experience arises and we can remember at the time to expand, just to make that suggestion, expand awareness, just to say that much. Expand awareness. Remember awareness. In what is this utterly, thoroughly, undeniably disagreeable experience taking place? I don't remember accurately whether it was Master Shu Yun or whether it was Ajahn Chah who said that there's nothing to be afraid of other than the time it takes to remember to be aware. That's the only thing we need to be afraid of. Life can be frightening at times. Life can feel threatening. But from the perspective of those wise beings, the only thing to be afraid of, the only thing we can really be afraid of, the only thing we can justify being afraid of, is the time it takes to remember awareness itself. So the Buddha's awareness was edgeless, our awareness is limited. And so how do we realise what the Buddha realised, this edgeless awareness, which is utterly undisturbed by any experience, any content, anything could arise and cease, disagreeable or agreeable, thoroughly enjoyable, enticing uh, experience can arise in awareness without defining awareness. How do we realise that experience? Well... We don't just idealise it and make an image and bow down to it. That's got its place. Yeah, that, that image symbolises for us edgeless awareness. And so, yes, we bow down to it. 
we humble ourselves in front of it because that's the most valuable thing. Limitless awareness is the most valuable reality. And so it's skillful and wise to lower ourselves in front of it. But how do we realize it? Bowing is useful, but more than that, more than that, is that when we're imposing the limitations on awareness, when we're doing this clinging, in the moment where we're becoming our preference, in the moment where we're clinging to our views and our beliefs and our opinions, if we've prepared ourselves, if we have the presence to remember, at that moment, awareness itself. So I don't know if these thoughts are any use for you. I uh, hope they are and offer them for your contemplation. And also um, in this theme, I'd like to uh, dedicate this contemplation this evening to my, my old dear university professor, Jim Ritchie. Thank you very much for your attention this evening. And then I am... Um...